0: Okay, so the first thing um, now most of the time when when churches talk about money, uh, they talk about giving money, and I'll talk maybe a little bit about that because if I don't, I think people might get the wrong idea um, about how I feel about money. But the idea for today's talk is that we're going to talk about how to make money as a Christian, and I was It was interesting because we we put something up on Facebook about today's talk. And that didn't go very well. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, it didn't go very well. (laughs) Which got me kind of excited. And then I had to repent for that, I think. Uh, I don't know, there's something in me that wants to stir the pot a little bit, I think. Um, But, yeah, it didn't go great. And so I think that... There's something out there about money. Um, There's pushback on on making money as a Christian. And again, whenever I see that, I think part of the reason I get excited is because I think, oh, there's something that's important. That's something that's probably important to talk about, and that's probably something people aren't talking about. And um, maybe that's kind of something that the Lord has for Christians, and that's important for Christians in order for us to do what we're supposed to do here. And that's why it's being so attacked, being attacked particularly by Christians. Um, So the first thing I want you to think about, I want you just to sit back. Maybe you can close your eyes. Maybe not if you're, depends how you are with your imagination. But I'd like you to imagine, and uh, imagine receiving money. And I want you to imagine your, and I want you to think about your feelings as you receive it. So just imagine receiving a check, and I'd like you to put a number on that check that for you represents a good amount. I'd like you to put that number on there, and I'd like you to imagine receiving that check. And just think about uh, your emotions. You know, what do you think? What are you feeling as you take the hold of that check? Is it anxiety? Is it elation, joy? I'd like you to add a zero to the check. <laughs> okay, there's some good feelings out there. <laughs> now I'd like you to imagine that somebody's like dropped it. And for some reason, it's okay to pick it up. Like this is just found money. Nobody, You don't have to worry about the claim. It's something that kind of dropped out of heaven for you. How do you feel about that? Now i like you to imagine that you worked hard for it, that you got paid this after a tough job. How do you feel about that? What if you had a business and it was a good idea that you had and it made a bunch of money and now you get that? Do you want God to know about it? Or do you wish he didn't really know about it, that it could be just yours? you want to keep it a secret. Okay, you can open your eyes. I don't know what all your feelings were, but I want you to keep them in mind, because the first thing that I think we need to be aware of if we're going to deal with money as Christians is how you feel about it. I had a lot of, I'll talk about my feelings growing up. I've always been fascinated by money. Uh, I think money is attractive and fascinating to most people but I think it was a little more for me. It was something that I think it was more for me. I don't know how much you think about it. I, was, I would remember stories about money. I would think about businesses. I had a lot of businesses. Not many of them actually did anything. But I had a lot of logos. I had a lot of business plans. I had um, slogans and I would just create these. Uh, when, I, when we got married, it actually stressed my, stressed Natasha out, stressed my wife out, because she thought that all these plans, I was actually going to do something about them. She thought that we were going to have to do something. She'd be like, oh my goodness, we can't do that. I remember one time we drove by, do you remember, you know the Polo Park Target building? And how that, like, just kind of went defunct? And we drove past that, and I was like, I wonder how much that costs? I wonder, like, what if we could do something? Like, what if we got a lease for that? I wonder how much the lease is on that. And Natasha's like having a panic attack inside. <laughs> She's like, it's kind of encouraging. It's like she sees me as actually being able to do these kinds of things. I'm like, honey, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> it's like, wow, you really believe in me. Now Simeon is actually doing the same. He's thinking a lot about it. Just this morning he, they were playing around up here. And Simeon paid Anna a dollar to find out what that what she got him for Christmas. <laughs> Unfortunately, he found out what he was getting before we could stop him. <laughs> but then he felt really good because <laughs> he felt really good because uh, he was like, "I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pay you, Anna." Oh wait, no, he paid her a dollar. So then he was like, "You could pay me to find out what you got for Christmas." And so he came up to us, and he felt like he got a good deal. And he's like, <laughs> "He's like, I just had to pay one dollar, but she gave me three pennies." <laughs> <laughs> the first secret to earning money: <laughs> know its value, right? <clears throat> so, all of this fascination that I had with money actually created a fair amount of anxiety, because there's verses that were troubling. First Timothy six ten. But if we, had food, if we have food and clothing. With these we will be content, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs and I would quake and wonder at my heart so how should we feel? How should we feel receiving money? To understand money, one, one thing that helped me was to kind of zoom out and understand what it is. And I believe that my, well, my favorite definition for money is the ability to do things or strength. And when you define it that way, as your strength, as your ability to do things, it changes. Now, I'm not sure about you, but as I walk in Christian circles, people are always praying for strength. People are praying for emotional strength. People are praying for the ability to heal. People are praying for the ability to prophesy, um, physical strength for themselves. We're constantly praying for the ability to do things, the ability to be strong. And I don't know about you, but when I think about the ability to heal supernaturally and money, healing is much more powerful than money. You can go up to a king who's got cancer, and you can give him something that he can't buy with money. So we're okay with praying for healing, but are we okay with praying for money? We're okay with some forms of strength, but we're not okay with others. The Lord calls us to love him with all of our strength, with all of our hearts, with all of our minds. I'm going to talk a little bit about money in the Bible, and there is a lot about money in the Bible, but not much of it is explicit. Most of it is implied. Um, I'll give you an example. I think people are nervous for me about this talk, so they're kind of coaching me. So Wilma came up to me this morning, and she's like, You know, when they talk about the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments, why are they talking about the Sabbath? It's because we're supposed to work six days, and we're supposed to rest one. and I hadn't thought of that. I thought that was pretty good. I'd also been thinking about every time the Bible tells us to give, well, where's all this money coming from if we're supposed to give it away? I mean, yes, people do supernaturally get money from heaven. I mean, Jesus got some coins from the fish of a mouth. From the I said that last night, too. <laughs> the mouth of a fish. But most of it, the main and the plane of money is that you get it from your work. You get it from what you do. You get it from your ideas. So every time you see a scripture that's talking about giving money away, I want you to think, well, God must want us to work. God must want us to earn money. Every time you see a scripture about rest, it's implied that we probably should be resting from something. If you're resting all week, and then you're taking the Sabbath so seriously, I'm not sure what that is. One thing that helped me think about money was that almost, not almost all, but most, I would say, of the... Prominent biblical heroes, especially in the Old Testament, were extremely wealthy. Amen. (laughs) Ooh, I can't yell. It's too loud. Okay, so Job was wealthy, and then he got more wealthy, even after he lost it all. Abraham had camels. It's not so big for us. I don't know how expensive a camel is now today but at that time it was very unusual to have camels. He was so wealthy that he could use his men to create an army. He was almost like a, I don't know what you call it, I think somebody said a sheik or something like this, like a chieftain. (coughs) Jacob, extremely wealthy. Joseph, second in command to Pharaoh. Moses, Extremely wealthy growing up. Extremely powerful. Had access to the resources of all of Israel. David was a king. David gave away more money than most of us could ever dream of having. I forget exactly what the number was, but I think it was in the billions of how much money in today's equivalent that he gave in order to create and build the temple. Daniel. Very high up in government. Okay, so we have all these heroes, profound heroes in the faith who are wealthy in the Old Testament, but okay, some people believe that the Old Testament is radically different than the New Testament, and in some ways it is, but it's the same God, I would remind you, he doesn't change. But for that sake of that argument, I looked for some heroes in the New Testament. They're not as prominent, I'll give you that, but they're there, and they're very important. Joseph of Arimathea, he was wealthy enough to have a prepaid tomb that he gave to Jesus. I like this one. Women, multiple women who supported Jesus in his ministry. I'll read you this one, because again, these ones aren't as obvious. Luke 8, 3. The twelve were with him, and also some women, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, I think, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many, many, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Jesus was able to do what he was doing because he had people behind him who were funding him. Roman centurion. A Roman centurion is a part of the Roman army who commands roughly 60 to maybe even 1,000 men. I'm going to talk about one centurion in the Bible. And this is, they were pleading for Jesus to heal the servant of this Roman centurion. And this was their description of him. This man, this Roman centurion, deserves to have you do this, heal his servant, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. He wasn't just the leader of many men. He was wealthy. I mean, I don't know how big the synagogue was. But it was still building a building. And I want, you to, I want to point you to something about this. Remember, this is a wealthy Gentile. And this is what Jesus said about him. I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Another hero in the faith who is wealthy. Philemon, Philemon. I'm not sure how you say it. I always say Philemon in my head, but I hear people say Philemon. One, a very short book of the Bible. And the whole book is basically Paul pleading to a wealthy man to take care of a servant. Highly esteemed. There were others, I'm not going to get into more, who had churches in their houses. Wealthy people who were supporting the ministry, often from the background. Okay. So this is a story that most people think of, and I didn't have it originally in, but when I told this sermon to Natasha, she said, you have to talk about the rich young, young ruler. And I said, but my sermon isn't really about justifying why we can make money. And she said, you've got to talk about this. So here we go. The rich young ruler. And, it, and it's very relevant in the sense that you have to figure out how you're going to deal with these passages. So there was a rich young ruler, very a man who was very obedient, following the commands of Moses. And this is how Jesus looked at him. He looked at him, and Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. I think if you remember this, passage, or this part of the Bible, he, didn't, he wasn't able to do it because he had a lot. And this is what Jesus said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I think it's interesting what the disciples said to this. They could have said something like, oh yeah, good riddance, or those few people, that's too bad for them. But they said, then who can be saved? So I'm thinking they're thinking that they might be amongst this, or maybe they're thinking one day maybe I will be. This is a difficult passage to deal with. I want to say that I don't believe that poverty is a natural state. Okay, so don't jump at me here. <laughs> I don't believe poverty is a natural state for a human being, I believe it's a mission. I believe it's something you're called to, even if you don't necessarily have a choice. Jesus was a rich, I don't know if he was young, but he was a rich ruler. His natural state, I believe, is not as a man on a cross. I believe that was extremely unnatural for him. I don't think it was natural for him to walk around on earth in the dust and be poor under the curse that we've caused on this planet. His natural state was to be in heaven. His natural state was to rule. God loves comfort. I believe our natural state is Eden. I believe our natural state is heaven. And I believe our natural state is the New New Jerusalem. We were made for comfort. We were made for power. And we haven't always handled it very well. I think one of the greatest testaments of love that Jesus did was actually coming from his natural state and entering missionally into a state of poverty and suffering for us. He was a rich ruler who gave it all up. He gave it all up when he came to heaven, sorry, when he came to earth and he gave it all up again when Jesus tempted him and said that he would give him all, sorry, when the devil tempted him and gave him all of the kingdoms of the earth and Jesus said no. I didn't come here for that. I think we need to be very careful if we're planning or if we have been gifted with wealth. I believe it is a test, and I also believe that being poor is a test. The road is narrow for everybody, and it's it's hard to get it right. And ultimately, I believe we need to be following the Holy Spirit in our walk with money to make sure that we're actually keeping ourselves safe and praying that God would only give us what we can handle I will pray for money I'll pray for the ability to love him with more more strength but ultimately my most fervent prayer is Lord do whatever you have to do to make sure that I make it through so I think we need to come to money not with a paralyzing fear that we should try to hide from it and from power in general. But I do believe that we need to come and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with a deep respect for the fact that these things can destroy people. I don't want it to be taken lightly. So remember at the beginning I was talking about my trouble with money and how I was anxious about it. Well, we went to the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Great place. I highly recommend it. And they had something there called the Cyrus program. <laughs> I saw that on the door and I was like, "Hmm, maybe I belong in there." <laughs> I found out that it was their way of talking about money and people of great wealth because Cyrus in the Bible is a king. He's a king, he's a heathen king. So, I don't know what that means, but He was a king who was prophetically used to rebuild and release the Jews and rebuild Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. The wealth coming to fund God's movement, to fund revival. And I found that experience liberating, not because it meant that I got to be wealthy, but because I believe that one of my primary giftings is, you know, there was a prophetic description for me in one room, um, and that was kind of like an oil canister, like or sorry, an oil, an oil, tube, funneling money into God's movement. I don't like the heathen part, but I do want to be like King Cyrus in funding what God's doing on the earth and to be trusted with what God has so that I get to have fun with him. It's fun to work with him. It was absolutely liberating. I want to read another passage that comes after that love of money passage in 1 Timothy. Later on it says, right after it says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. A couple of verses later it says, as for the rich in this present age, so it's talking about the rich, just a few verses later, charge them not to be haughty, nor to sell their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He didn't tell them all to give it up. He didn't tell them to stop he told them to trust in God and not in the money, and he told them to be generous. So the second step that I want to talk about, now that hopefully our feelings are a little bit more aligned, it's a big process to get your feelings aligned about money, I'm still working on it, but hopefully that's helping. The second step is to think about your money priorities. If you're going to make money as a Christian, it's good to get first things first. One of the strongest passages about money in the Bible, I believe, is this one, 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ooh. It goes against a lot of things about money that you might think. If you're not providing for your family, not only are you not doing something great, but you're closer to being an unbeliever to denying the faith now the context for that passage is actually talking about widows and talking about basically how we need to provide for people who can't provide for themselves So inherently there's an awareness of the fact that some people are having trouble providing for themselves in this case the widows so this isn't saying you need to go out and make money even if you can't or if you have something that Blocks you from doing that. Instead, it's saying, if you can provide, if you have a gift to provide, and you don't provide for the people around you, if you sit around and don't actually make the money, or if you make the money and don't give it away, then this is a passage for you. Have your Sabbath, but on Monday, get to work. So it's talking about widows here, but I think that we can generalize that a little bit to say that if God has gifted you with the ability to make money, with the ability to provide for others or for God's kingdom, you really do need to take that seriously. It's not a passive call. So if you're supposed to take care of your family, which is where we are now, okay, I'm supposed to take care of my family, so that means I should probably do everything again to make them comfortable to get them set up first, right? Well, not so much. In Proverbs 24:27 it says, I love this one. This is so interesting to me. Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. Now, business in Christian in the Christian world is often seen as the last, as the least, as the worst. Do everything you can first, and then do your business. If you have to be a business person, maybe. I don't know if that's true. That's a general sentiment that people often feel about the Christian world. This is actually saying, before you get your family comfortable, you should actually go and make sure that your business is taken care of. Before you you buy the TV, before you get the steak, you should probably make sure that you have an income set up. A field in that time was not just cutting the grass, it was your income, your livelihood. It was the place that you made money. When we were, uh, we came back from mission, and we were pregnant, and we had nothing, we had given everything away, we could fit our lives, into the trunk of a Corolla. And we had to, all of a sudden, have a baby, which we didn't think was possible, but now we were pregnant. So I started a business. And we didn't spend a lot on ourselves at all, aside from everything Natasha needed to eat at the time. (laughs) She ate really well. (laughs) (laughs) Money. <laughs> nothing else but organic food, and nothing else in the house. Anyway, so all of our money that we did make, all the money that we had went to basics, and it went to our business. I spent a lot on our business, and it was weird to spend all this money on ideas that might not work, on things that were risky, and come home and have rice and salad dressing. <laughs> I would work 14-hour. Well, I'd work more than 14 hours. I'd, I'd had. was one time? I actually saw 12 clients in a row. So a session for me for therapy. I'm a psychologist, if you don't know. A session for me is 50 minutes, but oftentimes it's not really. And so I would have boost. And I, when I do therapy, I like to have an empty bladder. You can learn a little secret about me. we will have to edit that out after. And so I like to go to the bathroom so that I can be comfortable and I can just focus on the person, I don't get distracted. So I'd have to sprint down the hallway to go to the bathroom and come back. And by the last client, I don't know if my therapy got better <laughs> or if my therapy got worse, but I was, I was in another zone. <laughs> I remember one time we had another psychologist, and he, we always had this competition between me and him. He was starting his practice around the same time as me. I don't think it was good for me to do 12 hours of therapy because he came in, and he surprised me. He just like came in at nine o'clock after my last client. And he came in, and I tried to like look awake and to look like I was ready for him. And he was like, what's wrong? <laughs> and I was like, oh dear. I <laughs> can't believe my practice is still growing. <laughs> so I worked really hard. And we had to not have Saturdays or have evenings because those are when clients come, they're more likely to come. And um, we grew the business. And then we had to provide for the family. Well, I was providing money, but I wanted to actually provide care. So, what was really, also, a really hard step for me was. Not working evenings and not working Saturdays, I had to cut those out because we had Simeon now, and I had to be home. And it was amazing to me. Like, you think, well, families cost a lot of money, right? They cost a lot of money because you have to pay for education and clothing and all these kinds of things. (coughs) That's not nearly what it costs. It costs so much because I can't work. I have to be home. Being a good father isn't expensive because I have to buy clothing or soothers. It's expensive because I have to play with Lego. <laughs> it's expensive because I can't earn anymore, even though I have the energy to. So first, take care of your business. Make sure you have what you need, and then go and take care of your family. You get the idea. You kind of have to do, balance both. The next part I want to talk about, the next priority after taking care of your family, and putting your and getting your business in order is actually kind of this idea of counting. I'm not a very I'm not very good at counting. As much as I've been fascinated with money, I don't count it very well. I don't keep track of it. And I actually realized that this came from some anxiety for me that I think came from my faith, from my Christian walk. Um, some of you might know that David got into a lot of trouble for counting things. A lot of trouble for counting things. He counted and took a census of people, particularly the his army, and he got into a lot of trouble. I forget what it was. Thousands of people died in a plague because of that. And I've heard pastors say, like, we're not counting the congregation, right? You know, because it's like, you can't count stuff if you're a Christian. It's like, don't <laughs> count anything. So I had this fear, I think, in me, and it kind of went all against budgeting or anything like that. You know, you hear, like, budgets, like, well, okay, I'll count this and I'll count that, but don't count everything. And... Be careful, you know, and kind of got to count it, but oof. Can anybody relate to that or is that just me? Do you guys have trouble with counting things because of that? I was wondering, I was asking Natasha, I was like, is this just me that grew up with, like, a fear of counting stuff? Okay, well, I see some nodding out there. That's good. Okay. Proverbs 27, 23. Know well the conditions of your flocks and give attention to your herds. David was prompted by the devil to do his census. And I heard one rabbi say that there was a tradition in Israel of not taking a census. So are you supposed to count things? Maybe not. But I don't think we can use that as our rule to not count things. I think the rule should probably be to take care of the conditions of your flocks and your herds. And then maybe sometimes with certain things and certain positions, maybe God will tell you not to count because you're counting with a wrong heart. You're trusting in the numbers rather than just knowing what they are so you can take care of things. So I think counting is something to be aware of, but not necessarily something to discard entirely. If I was a shepherd, I'd have to count a lot in order, I'd have to count the 100 often in order to know when the one got away. You probably know I'm talking about the parable of the lost sheep. The woman who swept up her house looking for the lost coin had to know that it was gone before she actually swept up the house to know. She had to count. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, was taken into the kingdom of heaven, and he said, Lord, Lord, I'm going to give away half of everything I have. And to anybody I've cheated, I'm going to really give it to them. I'm going to give them four times the amount. And Jesus didn't go up to him and say, are you counting your money? He said nothing. He just allowed him to count half of what he had, and he had good records in order to be able to pay back the people he had cheated. So, I think it's good to budget. I think it's good to have a plan, and I think it's good to keep track as your general rule. The next one that I think also tricks or trips Christians up is thinking ahead. This is another one. Is it okay to plan as a Christian? Oftentimes, Christians don't want to plan things. They don't want to think ahead. Then you're not following the Holy Spirit. It's not spirit driven if it's planned. Proverbs 22, verse 3 The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The Bible says many times that we need to watch and we need to pray, particularly when talking about the end times. I had a client and they had a disease, forget the name, and this disease indicated to him and the medical community that he only had about seven years to live. And he had this disease from when he was around 20, just starting out his life. And he went along and then they came up with more medical treatments and then they said okay you've got another 7 years to live and so he went for another 7 and then they s- said we've actually got some new stuff we think this is going to extend your life again and then he came to see me and he said i don't have any i don't have a wife and he said i don't have any kids and I don't have any money." He was living for the day. He was trying to make the most of every moment he had, which is basically what our culture says to do, and he regretted it. He regretted it, because he had nothing now. And he was at the age now where he could have done those things, where he could have had a wife, he could have had kids. Now, I'm not chastising him, I mean, he had a good, medical community telling him that he couldn't do those things and I probably would have done the same but I want to just say it's important to plan ahead it's important to watch and it's important to pray now when I say plan ahead I do mean think ahead I do mean using your brain to see problems coming I do mean trying to understand the market to know where things are gonna go so that you can be prepared and make more of an income. But I'm also talking about King Cyrus. King Cyrus wasn't necessarily aware of the prophetic, but his life was taken over by the Holy Spirit. And his future was determined by the prophetic decrees of Isaiah and Jeremiah. When you plan, when you think for the future, it's not just thinking about things well not just thinking things through it's also using the prophetic one of the reasons that i got so excited about being part of a prophetic church like this or a prophetic community is that i believe that the cyruses that the people who are funding god's movement need to be really connected with the prophetic movement and i'm excited to be connected with you my hope for today is that all of us would walk away from this feeling a little bit differently about money feeling like not necessarily like "Oh, good i have you know the green light to go and be wealthy and forget about god that's not what i'm talking about at all i think that it's important to work this out with respect and following the holy spirit and following what god's calling you to do but i also know that many of you, perhaps most of you, are called to make money, and some of you are called to be gifted with money, where this is actually going to be one of the primary ways that you interact with the Holy Spirit. And I want to release you into your calling. I want to release you into what God has planned for you, whether it's whatever measure God gives you in money, you are called to use it, to steward it. Not just the money that you have and giving it away or using it that way, but using and stewarding your gifting to make it, to providing for his church and for the people around you, for his kingdom in general. So we talked about feelings about money. We want to give our strength to the Lord, including money. We talked about strategies for developing strength how we pray for healing, we pray for the prophetic, and we pray for finances. Priorities, how we want to make giving to our families and working for them our priority, first by taking care of our means to make money and then taking care of them. And we wanna be aware of what's coming. We wanna take care of our business, we wanna take care of our work, and we wanna plan ahead by thinking about it. We wanna plan ahead by praying and being connected with the prophetic. Let's pray. Oh. Okay, Lord. What are you saying? I believe that the Lord I believe that the Lord is How am I getting this? I believe that the Lord is calling Maple Crest. Um, first of all, to steward finance as well. So Lord, I pray that we would be good stewards. But I also pray that you would fulfill your calling to be gifted in finances here, to be gifted in provision, to be gifted in stewardship, that we would be able to go forward with power in your kingdom because we haven't neglected the gifts that you've given us, the strength that you've given us. We're going to worship, and, and we're actually going to do our donations.